Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So we're at an interesting juncture in the retreat. <clears throat> Some of you, many of you, started today with um, opening up and allowing some connection with others. <clears throat> and you can see the, the end in sight, either with anticipation or reluctance, resistance, whatever, but it's there, it's coming. And others are just going deeper into the heart of your two-month retreat. <clears throat> so I wanted to say something that hopefully will be relevant to both the departing yogis and the, uh, the continuing yogis. And first, want to just say that we're all on a journey together whether we're on our way out or uh, going deep into, into the retreat, we've all been on this journey together and this journey of awakening. And I hope that you can see that every moment, whether or not you realize it, um, as you're practicing with a sincere heart, you are planting the seeds for deepening in, um, in wisdom and in compassion and love. And the Dharma gives you just what you need to do that. You might have a preferred plan, but um, you know what John Lennon said, life is, ha life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. The Dharma knows, or life knows, just what to give you to either grow in a tender heart and in learning to hold things or um, learning to be with them and learn from them or uh, the miracle of awakening as you see more clearly. Either way, and what we're learning here is to be here for the ride and enjoy the whole show. And it takes a bit of going through the ups and downs. Um, it takes a lot of going through the ups and downs uh, before perhaps you um, get again and again, oh, just be with things as they are. <clears throat> and sometimes it feels like um, as you're going in more deeply that stuff comes up and it feels like you're back to square one. Have you had that feeling? Anybody ever have that feeling? Yeah. yeah. I've been doing this a long time. What am I supposed to be doing again? <laughs> oh yeah, just just be mindful. That's what they keep on saying, you know. Yeah. But it feels like you're a beginner, and you know, you've probably all heard the the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he says, uh, in uh, the uh, the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And so again and again, we're being asked to bring that beginner's mind to our experience. But sometimes it can seem a bit confusing. Oh, there's more stuff. I thought I was finished with that. Or, oh, it's a whole other layer of mm, stuff that I'm uncovering. And I, I wanted to read to you um, a couple of um, favorite quotes of mine from Be Here Now the book that changed my life, that really point to this 
understanding about practice. He says, Ramdas says, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. But of course, the light is brighter too. It all becomes more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of your practice. So that's a good way to hold it when it seems like, you know, I can't believe I'm here again. Oh, you're opening to deeper levels that you have the tools to um, to hold and learn from and open to and hold with courage and a tender heart. <clears throat> But you don't need to keep on excavating. Okay, come on, bring it on. Okay, oh, here's some more. Let's just go in for, you know, the full archaeological site. No. Things come up in their own way, and you can just trust in the unfolding. And you maybe sometimes realize, oh, I don't need to excavate again. Oh, if it's here, here it is. But I can also be with things just as they are. And then he send, says this beautiful passage that's been very meaningful to me. What is happening to you is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood who you are and how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the spirit for whom things all are new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you're going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being born. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being reborn. It's all part of your curriculum, as Ramdas would say. Everything is here for us to learn from. And if you really get that sense of refuge in the Dharma, then every moment does count. <clears throat> but doubts can arise. Am I getting anywhere? You know, I, I don't know if, if you have any kind of idea of progress. I don't know if I'm making any progress you know, and particularly maybe those who were down the lower part of the the campus today and starting to interact and and uh, and have a little bit of of um, wise communication, uh, you might see all your stuff again. The first time I did a long my first three month retreat, and I got pretty quiet, and it was I was in a really great space. And then silence broke, and I opened up my mouth. Judgment, paranoia, criticizing everyone, feeling separate, you know, just, and I went, I went running to Joseph, and I said something like, it didn't work. <laughs> and he reminded me, this is not about getting rid of your personality. It's about honoring the whole show and to embrace it 
and not be run by it, but to accept who you are and you just might find some something beautiful in there. He didn't quite say it like that, but that was what I've come to understand. I feel like uh, sharing this this passage from a yogi. Letter to my future self from somebody who's done a, a fair amount of practice and who would tend to get caught in, in doubt and wondering if it's happening or not. And this is what they wrote. Dear future me, caught in resistance, boredom, doubt, or self-doubt, etc., etc. I know it may not seem this way right now, but it's worth it. Really, really worth it. And it's working. And you're not doing it all wrong. In fact, you can't really not do it right. Your intention is powerful. Even if you may not recognize it at the moment, sometimes it goes a bit undercover. But believe me, it's there, and that's all that matters. You're doing great, and you're so wonderful, and I love you, and I'm so grateful that you're doing this. And I'm right there beside you with a lot of faith and compassion. Lean on it whenever you need it. All will be well. There is only one direction this can go. You might write your own letter to your future self in your clear moments when you see, oh, I just got lost there for the last half day or day or week you know, or month. But at some point you wake up, oh, yeah, I just got lost. Oh, I'm really learning, I'm really growing. And as we go through this process, there are various insights that happen along the way. This is called insight meditation. And you probably have seen this for yourself. That when the the mindfulness gets stronger, there's a, a spaciousness that gets created. We've talked about spaciousness and the expansiveness of wholesome states. And in that spaciousness, we're able to see things more clearly that we don't usually have the, um, the presence and the uh, clarity to understand. And, and we start understanding things about ourselves and our past in a new way, and we can probably begin to release the knots that are there, old patterns, with wisdom and with compassion. How many people have seen that in their own experience here? Just replaying stuff from your past. It's all there waiting to be um, understood in a new way. So that's a, the, the one level of insight. Just understanding the story and the patterns and the way we get caught and the way we can be free. And there's a deeper level of insight that is also available that perhaps, probably you've experienced for yourself as well. And that is understanding um, on an impersonal level the nature of reality. We've talked about this before. Regardless of whatever your history is, as you take more and more of a deeper look, you start to see those three characteristics of existence. 
everything is changing. Holding on to what is changing is dukkha. And you yourself are this changing experience. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And when you see, start to get glimpses of the selfless nature of reality and of this mind-body process, then you have a, start to have a different relationship with it and with everybody around you. Anatta. As my good friend and, and colleague Wes, Wes Nisker says, uh, it's, it's a not to me and it's a not to you. you know? <laughs> and it's a not about me and it's a not about you. And as you start seeing through that sense of separation, then you start seeing, oh, I'm not separate from all of us. And you lift the barriers, start to lift the barriers. And of course, the natural byproduct of that is a sense of connection and of caring. And then you start to see a whole other level of practice, which I'm sure uh, most, if not all, have seen here, that this practice is not just for your own reduction of stress. This practice is not just for ourselves, but it's for all beings. And I want to speak a bit about this this evening and starting with a a passage that um, I love by Bhikkhu Bodhi from his essay, A Challenge to Buddhists. Um, I, don't, I didn't read this, did I? No. Huh? No. Oh, good. Okay. And there's an essay, you can Google it, A Challenge to Buddhists. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, if you're not familiar with, uh, with him, he's the guy who's translated all the classical texts of the Pali Canon, the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya, and the connected discourses, two big volumes of Samyutta Nikaya, and uh, uh, the numerical discourses, the uh, Guttara Nikaya. He is an amazing scholar, and he is also a tremendously inspiring um, activist. And this is his challenge to Buddhists that I read um, probably at most every retreat because I think it's so important for us to really take in. So if you've heard it before, just take it in again. And this is just a part of that. It's, a, it's not that long an essay, but um, this is part of it. If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential, attracting the affluent and the educated. It will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can pre present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, 
is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of the Dharma. I believe it also points in a direction that the Dharma should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. A challenge to Buddhists. A few nights ago, Don gave a, a beautiful talk on compassion. And I want to go a bit further exploring in, in that theme, uh, and particularly in seeing our practice in that larger context. <clears throat> compassion, karuna, the sublime state of compassion. You know, the Brahma Viharas are sometimes called the sublime states. And compassion, karuna, is a sublime state that requires suffering. It's a prerequisite for compassion. When metta turns to suffering, compassion is naturally uh, evoked. Suffering is not sublime, of course, but the care that naturally arises is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. We're wired up for compassion. We have these mirror neurons in our, in our brain that are affected when we see suffering around us. Unless we completely cut ourselves off, which sometimes people do, But compassion is a very important part of this journey. And as we can feel connected to everyone, uh, we can bring that caring heart into our lives and other people's lives and awaken it in them as well. This is from the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And he has this this beautiful um, teaching on what he calls selfish altruism. That it feels really good to care and act on our caring. So we're the ones that benefit. And he says, this is okay. This is an okay kind of selfishness. So you're not doing it so that everybody else will say, oh, how wonderful you are. When it's true generosity of heart, you're doing it because it feels good. You all know that feeling when it's really coming from that generous heart and you... You just love being generous. Ah. And when somebody, if you're generous with somebody and they say, you know, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You know, how does that feel? Oh, maybe I shouldn't have. But when somebody says, oh, thank you. And you're not doing it for the thank you, but it's just, it feels so good to know that you, you're caring was supportive of someone. Not for the thank you, but just for the the sense of connection. Albert Schweitzer, the only ones among you who will truly be happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. And uh, Martin Seligman, who wrote that book I've mentioned before, Positive uh, Psychology, Authentic Happiness, the father of positive psychology, uh, said that authentic happiness comes by finding our gifts, identifying the gifts that life has given us and sharing them in a spirit of, of contribution 
to others. That's where the real happiness comes in. Or Shanti Deva, I'm just thinking now, uh, one of my favorite lines that um, the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. Miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. So if we can widen our circle of compassion and extend that empathy and caring to all beings and all people, all living beings, and to the earth, um, then there's a, a whole other context for practicing. And now here we are at this moment in humanity. We are at this very unique moment in time where the earth needs humanity to wake up like it never has before. If we are going to survive and if much of life is going to survive, the earth will keep on going, whether here we're here or not, like I said in that equanimity talk and the Dalai Lama saying, you know, world systems come and go. But at this moment in time, we're being called on to really wake up. As um, good friend Roger Walsh says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness is stronger than fear, but who knows how much time we have. So imagine being born at this time and the, you don't have to imagine, here we are born at this time and the, what we're asked, what's being asked of us. This is from my my friend Terry Patton, I mentioned him before, the, the fellow who died and, uh, and talked about not wasting time resisting reality. This is from his book, A New Republic of the Heart. He says, if the measure of a human life is a chance to have significance that extends beyond itself, then we've hit the jackpot. We are alive at game time on the planet when everything we value is genuinely threatened when it's time for all hands on deck. We've hit the jackpot. As I sometimes say, this is no time to play small. There's climate, there's racial injustice, there's fear rampant, there's divisiveness, there's greed, hatred, and delusion that might head us over the cliff to self-destruction, or there is a growing consciousness as, as there's never been on this planet before, never has there been as much consciousness. And we're part of that. Just relax into that. Don't feel pressure. But you're part of that. A few years ago, we did a, a climate day um, here at Spirit Rock and uh, one of the uh, presenters, this uh, wonderful, wise woman, Belvi Rooks, and she had this line that has re reverberated in my mind uh, for the last couple of years. 
this is the moment we were born for. And she said it with this excitement. This is the moment we were born for. Now you might say, gosh, I didn't, I didn't ask to be in this scene. Well, whether you did or not, you're here. So why not really make use of it? This is the moment we were born for when consciousness is needed more than ever. And we have the medicine. And we are at this very crucial moment that's important to take in. Uh, I, I said the other, the other day that I've gone through a, a few periods where I, I've had to digest and absorb um, the magnitude of what, what we're facing. And there's a natural kind of a process that is important to digest all of that, that reality. Mm. Joanna Macy talks about it in her wonderful book, Active Hope. And she has this spiral and she says, you first open in gratitude to the miracle of this being on this planet and all that it provides and just the wonders around. And with that openness of heart, you know, talked about gratitude, giving us more room to hold the, the sorrow and the pain. Then we're able to start to open up to the pain that's here. And you have to open to the pain. You, you, can't, you can't hide it or pretend it's not there. You have to take it in chunks, titrating our dukkha, but processing it so we're not afraid. Just like the Buddha said, don't be afraid of suffering, where Thich Nhat Hanh says, one of his 14 precepts, do not avoid contact with suffering. And then learn how to work with it. And she says, as you can grieve fully and metabolize the reality, then the next stage is seeing with fresh eyes. How can I hold this in a way that's not overwhelming, but is inspiring for me to do something about it in my own way? And then the last stage is then going forth. <clears throat> so I just want to read a, a touch to get you in touch with the reality. And I won't get into too much of it. One of the one of these mm, uh, pieces of information that that I needed to process was a uh, um, by David well, Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth. And this is from an article in uh, New York Magazine by that name. He wrote a book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And he says, it is, I promise, worse than you think. Absent a significant adjustment to how billions of humans conduct their lives, parts of the earth will likely become close to uninhabitable and other parts horrifically inhospitable as soon as the end of the century. Even when we train our eyes on climate change, we're unable to comprehend its scope. And I won't get into the various tipping points, but I think uh, just a little digging and you get the picture. As the Buddha has this image uh, back 2,600 years ago, most of us who are just caught in samsara are like children playing with our toys in the attic while the house is on fire. And he says, wake up. And we need to wake up because it's true, our house is on fire. So I'll say a little bit about climate 
some on climate and then the the bigger picture of really um, making a difference in the world, seeing your practice in that context. <clears throat> Sometimes when people hear about uh, climate um, and uh, they think, oh, do we really have to go there? Um, or, oh, is is that off point or that, that seems to be, that's a, that's a, it used to be thought of as a political issue. You know? And um, I'm remembering a, a few couple of years ago, uh, I did a, a retreat with uh, Analio, Venerable Analio, who Dawn has mentioned uh, so many times, an, an amazing um, meditation master, uh, scholar, uh, human being. And uh, it was a, a retreat on Anapanasati. And we were getting into very, you know, refined details of the 16 steps of Anapanasati and uh, really getting in there. The last day of the retreat, the last morning, he says, um, this morning I want to talk about a subject that some people might not consider appropriate for the Dharma Hall. But I want you to know, I think it's one of the most important things we can talk about. And then he proceeded to talk about climate, climate change. And not long after he, um, he came out with this book, Mindfully Facing Climate Change. And he said, you know, the, the Dharma is about relieving suffering. And since this situation is going to pres- uh, bring about enormous suffering, how can it not be a Dharma practice issue? And the beautiful thing is, the Dharma holds the key to this. This is a, that was a statement from a friend of mine uh, who is a climate activist, uh, who, um, Bob Doppelt, who wrote, has written a lot of, um, lot of books and articles and um, has done wonderful things in the climate movement. Uh, and this was a few years ago when uh, we got reacquainted. He used to, we used to sit together uh, in the 80s and, and then he, he said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but, and I said, oh yeah, I do remember you. I, think, I don't always remember, but I said, oh yeah, I do remember. You used to have a plaid shirt and, and, bright, and he said, that's me, yeah, in Brighton Bush. I used to teach up in Brighton Bush. And, uh, and he told me about his climate work that he was doing. And I said, um, after we got to know each other for a while, I said, wow, Bob, it is, it's so great that your climate work and your Dharma practice have come together. And he said, the Dharma holds the key. I said, oh, wow, okay. And then I said, I want you to come to a, a Dharma Vipassana Teachers Conference. I was involved with organizing one in 2013 here at Spirit Rock with a couple of other teachers. And I said, I want you to come and have all the teachers hear that the Dharma holds the key. And he did. And uh, One Earth Sangha came out of that and a few other uh, beautiful things. But that really stayed with me. Oh, the Dharma holds the key. What does that mean? And he, he shared with me um, his, uh, his book, From Me to We, the five transformational commitments that will save your life, your organization, and the planet, something like that. And these were the five Dharma points that he made in that book. And we, we just did a climate series here at Spirit Rock around this. So I just want you to see how you have the medicine for this particular issue and 
all the issues facing us because they're all kind of interlocked and interrelated. So the first one, the first Dharma wisdom that holds the key that will determine if there can be a shift of consciousness and so there's understanding of these points, then there's possibilities. One is what he calls, see the system that you are part of. And that is the understanding of interconnectedness, that we are not separate. It's not that man, humans, or man has dominion over nature. We are part of this system. We are nature. Do you ever reflect on that? It's not just, oh, I love nature. I am nature. I'm nature expressing itself in this form. That's what the word dharma is translated as often, just nature, the natural law playing through us. And the more we can see that we're part of this system, we're not separate from it, then of course there's a different response rather than it's there for our pleasure. It's us. John Muir says, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. So that's the first interconnectedness or really seeing the emptiness of separation. Second is understanding basic law of karma, cause and effect, that actions have consequences. And we can't pretend our actions don't have consequences. They certainly are. You don't have to look very far to see that. And just understanding cause and effect, what consequence, what result am I looking for? The third Dharma principle is sila. That is having, living a life with integrity, do no harm. I mean, here we've been in this retreat, we've taken the precepts. Isn't there a relief when you know this is a place of safety, of refuge? And this is such a special place because you can leave something around and know, oh, I left, it, left my, my bag at the, uh, uh, at the dining room. And you're not wondering, oh, did somebody take it? Oh, do no harm and act with integrity. And this is something everybody, you don't have to be a Dharma student to, to know the value of it because when you do something out of integrity, if you're really present, it feels off. Okay? But these are something that can radically change the way humanity lives in this world. The fourth Dharma principle is compassion. And that is seeing out of the caring of all life, wanting to relieve suffering and what he calls stewardship, seeing humanity as stewards, seeing us as stewards because somehow we have so much power um, that we can affect everything else from exploiter to steward. And then the, the fifth is intention, that we can determine our destiny I'm just thinking of that Goethe line, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. That everything starts with intention. And so we want to make a difference. 
And rather than seeing this as some really um, um, hopeless situation, you don't know. You never know. I was, um, I've been also touched by a, a really um, powerful book. This is called Choosing Earth, Humanity's Great Transition to a Mature Planetary Civilization. It's by Dwayne Elgin. And he's a futurist. He wrote a book called Voluntary Simplicity many years ago. And he's a, a very highly respected um, uh, visioner and futurist. And he goes into, with in deep um, exploration of the, of the situation, um, the different possibilities over the next five decades. And he goes through each decade. And he says, basically, um, there are three, three main threads where all of our um, sankharas might lead to. One is complete dystopia. This is over 50, 70 uh, years from now. Well, 50 he goes beyond. One is, another is um, artificial intelligence keeping track of everyone, kind of like, you know, the matrix and uh, everyone is under control. And the third is the awakening of the species. And there is quite as good a possibility of that as the other. Because that's often how it works, that we wake up because of suffering. Any one of those scenarios, there's going to be dukkha. But to see the possibility we are part of something really important and valuable. This is an awakening, as uh, um, Andrew Harvey calls it, uh, the dark night of the species. Just like in spiritual uh, journey, St. John of the Cross called, uh, called it the dark, the dark night of the soul. You go through the, the dukkha, the hardship, and you come out forged as steel and awakened. Well, we're going through our own awakening right now. And so, who knows how it's going to end, but you can be a part of something really significant. And I just want to invite us to see our practice in that way. Because the way I see it, we're all going to wake up sooner or later. Everyone, all the deniers will wake up sooner or later. So why not do everything we can to make it sooner? Because that will be a lot less dukkha. Thomas Merton says, an activist has to come to terms with the fact that what is done may ultimately be fruitless but that you're not doing it solely for the hope of results. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. And the Talmud says, if the world were ending and you knew that nothing would make a difference, you'd still do what's most aligned with the heart's deepest values, just for the rightness of it. So here we are, and I want to really encourage us to keep in mind this way to hold our practice. Yeah, we take in as much as we can without being overwhelmed, but we do it as... Mm, as Joanna, uh, uh, not Joanna, as Julia Butterfly Hill says, as a joyful responsibility. A joyful responsibility. Oh, because it's contagious. This is from Nyoshal Kempo, great Tibetan master. 
We're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed in us, and become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So here we are, called on to, in our own way, uh, be bodhisattvas in training. You know the bodhisattva ideal? Where your practice is not just for yourself, it's for everyone. And when you have that kind of a personal vow, it has power and value in it and sets you on a course. I'll share with you a little story of my own personal bodhisattva vow that I didn't even, that I took before I ever heard the word bodhisattva, and then maybe invite us to do something like that here together. This is many years ago in, when I was in college, in, uh, in Queens College in New York. <clears throat> and I was going through a, a really existential period, reading, uh, reading a lot of um, existential authors, Camus and Sartre and No Exit and things like that. And I just said, what is the point of life? You know, and, and every conversation I had was kind of a dead end to what's the point? We're born, you suffer, then you die. Okay. I wasn't that much fun to be around. Right? <laughs> and this lasted for a while. And one day in the Queens College cafeteria, huge building, a huge uh, room, maybe 700 or so people in it, I looked out at this sea of humanity and I just looked at everyone and there were some people were having a fun time with their friends and a table and somebody else who was busy studying their books and somebody else that seemed kind of alone and somebody else that seemed like a tough guy and uh, just the whole sea of humanity. And the thought occurred to me, wow, everybody here in their own way just wants to be happy And then I said, well, I haven't been able to figure out anything that could give life meaning. And then as I thought about that, I said, maybe if I could bring a little bit more happiness into the world, that would give my life meaning. I didn't know how I was going to do it because I was depressed as hell. But it gave me a direction. Okay, I maybe can find out what happiness is about and then maybe I can help other people do that. So you never know. You plant that seed and there's a power in that intention. So I would like us to just play around with this right now to see our practice in this context, and you probably already do, but here we are at this point in the retreat, and let's, let's do it together. So I invite you to um, settle in. And the, the principle is simple, really, just to see your own happiness or your own practice in the context of how it can benefit others. And take a few moments to ask yourself, 
what it would be like for your own practice to ripple out and touch others in your life and for it to ripple out through them and continue to touch others and so on and so on. And seeing your practice as this amazing gift that you could give to the world. And just reflect on what words would sincerely convey that wish in a way that uplifts your heart, that inspires you. And when you found a phrase that resonates with you, silently state those words as a pledge to yourself. And just connect with the sincerity of the intention they express. Feel what it's like in your body and your mind as you connect and make that promise to yourself. You might hold those words in your mind and your heart as a kind of guidepost, North Star, and see that all you need to do is your part. It's too much to think that you're supposed to save the world. But if you do your part, that inspires others. And doing it as a joyful responsibility letting go of any conclusions of what you think is going to happen, but just holding an inspiring vision. And as you stay inside, I'll just end the talk with this beautiful quote from Einstein perhaps you're familiar with. A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. They experience themselves, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty.
Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much for your practice. And I hope you find it uplifting and inspiring to think that you're practicing not just for you, you're practicing for all of us and for the planet. <laughs>